0: Uh, We're starting off a new series today, and I'm going to start off with a statement that might offend, and it's intended to, so that's fine. Um, Biblical Christianity does not exist outside a relationship with a church. And again, bold words, but it's something that we need to deal with. As an ordained minister, I've had people throughout the years try to convince me otherwise, because they'll come to me and they'll say, look, I love the Lord, I love Jesus, I love people, but you know what, sometimes for me, church is being out in nature and just seeing all that Jesus and God have made, you know, we sang How Great There Are Today, which is a wonderful old hymn that talks about the, the grandness of all that the Lord has made with his hands. And this is not to deny that that exists, but it's important that we realize however much that can be a spiritual experience and inspirational for us, it's not church, And the reality is, is that when you become a Christian, you automatically become a part of the church. And now this would be uh, at two different tiers. It's the church universal, or we usually use this concept, the church lowercase c, Catholic, because Catholic means essentially universal. When you become a Christian, when you decide to follow Jesus, you become part of his church but it, doesn't, it isn't supposed to exist only within that context, but it also should exist as a local gathering or body. And again, this isn't just the words of an ordained minister who's trying to convince people that they need to be in church worship every week, but this is to what the scriptures attest. You never see in the New Testament somebody that claims to follow Jesus that operates outside of a small local body. There's many reasons, I think, that has uh, become a, a belief that people have tried to steer clear of. I think one of the ways is just because we live in America and there are so many churches that don't necessarily embody what we believe Jesus represents, so therefore we want to devalue that Actually, I talked about Catholic, maybe if you have a Roman Catholic background, there's a belief of theology that differs than we Protestants do, which is that the church is actually the vehicle for your total salvation, so that without the church that you have no relationship with God whatsoever. And it's not that we believe that, but it just comes down to a base level of spiritual accountability. Friends, we as followers of Jesus... We're made to live in a semblance of accountability with each other. Again, maybe that's um, a more unpopular statement than the one that I led with, but I think it's critical that we understand that this isn't just the musings of somebody who's trying to convince you to show up into a room at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning, but more so that's what the scriptures teach. We are meant to be part of the local church. So as we then get to this point of what we are doing here, we have to understand if that were not the truth, then this community wouldn't have existed at all. Like I I wouldn't have moved from a nice existence in Mason, Ohio with my pregnant wife to come down to this community to start a a, a, church church. And there were people there at the beginning with us who believed that. Sean Wuskey's here with us today, and Sean and his wife Melissa, we sponsored them as missionaries to Boston. And our relationship began when Sean was with us on an abnormally hot day in the middle of the summer of 2005, when we were right down the street here on the third floor of this old church building, and we were talking about what it meant for us to start a local community of believers. I remember, Sean, you wore a sweater that day. Which was the wrong choice in July, because I felt like maybe I should stop the meeting, because that dude looks hot. (laughs) But we still exist. And, and Sean tried to take some of that with him. And that's what we've been doing for 12 years. What we've tried to do is start a community, be a community of believers that stands for certain things. So that when people inevitably leave here, and I'm it's something that I'm beginning to lean into much more. Because it's something that has happened over 12 years is people come to Echo to leave. And that would be mildly depressing, except for the fact that they go on to other places and locations and churches and ministries, and we are a sending place. So when we send people out, we want to send them with the DNA of who we are. And friends, this is why the next four weeks, as we try to dive into what we call, you know, generically with an organizational structure as core values, it's so much more than a list of four words, but it's who we are as a body of believers, and what we believe we are called in Christ to be. And therefore that these values that we throw in the church should through our very relationships, start to show in our lives. So this is what we want you to contribute to us and the church to give back into you is to take these four concepts and make them incarnational. So for the next few weeks... We're doing a series called Throughout the Hills, and it's kind of loosely based upon the mission statement that we crafted over twelve years ago, that we exist to resonate the voice of God throughout the city and to the rest of the world. And we've done well with that. We can do better at that. Um, But what we want out of the next few weeks, and I'm just challenge you just Um, to be here with us during this time, because we want you to understand um, how the church sees ourselves, how you should see yourself through the ministry of our church, and then how you can reflect this in your lives. And we start with that, uh, with our core value of creativity. And creativity is something that we've really focused on uh, throughout our time as a church, uh, it, it was one when when we gathered uh, to to talk about core values it 's one that we listed first because the city is a haven of both creative and cre- creatives and creative expression that some of you have jobs that exist within creative industries that you get paid to make stuff and things. And it hit to the extent that we've embodied this and in 2013, we spent an entire year of creativity where every week we had people bring in things that they have made or projects that they had uh, com- committed to do and have accomplished and we, we studied the Psalms and we tried to see who, who God made us and we're going to see this morning is that God has made you Creative. And I thought about just grabbing some biblical texts because I've really studied this topic thoroughly throughout uh, my, my ministerial career, but more so than just honing in on something today, we're, we're going to do an examination of the meta narrative of scripture. So we're not going to open to a particular text, but what I want you to see is how over the course of the biblical history that God has tried to uh, show his people their need to be creative. So we're going to look at this throughout this course of scripture and I start with the world before the fall as we try to discover the thread between God creator and us as people and that starts at the very beginning in Genesis 1 because we see that God, who made all things, is basically an artist, right? And the universe is his canvas. And he's using that area as expression. And he utilizes things that are essential for artistic work itself. He utilizes light ...in space and unity of concepts. He himself is absolutely creative. Understand this is that as much as the world works... ...and we love to apply scientific lenses to the world that exists before us... ...recognize that it is far more aesthetically beautiful and pleasing... ...than it is utilitarian. Yes, God was interested that the world works. Praise Jesus for gravity... But at the same time, he is just as dedicated to things looking and sounding and appearing with beauty. This is evidenced in the wonderlust that we have when we look at somebody's Instagram account and they're someplace where we're not. Maybe they're on a beach or maybe they're near a lake by a mountain. We see people from all over the world now. Maybe you have this opportunity to see beauty in your feeds constantly where people are. And the reason why is that this is a beautiful world. And you have to ask yourself why. Does the world have to be beautiful Does a peacock really need to have all of those feathers in a colorful array? Why does God do this? Theologian Gene Veith believes that God did it to increase our awareness of the beauty and significance of what we normally ignore because it's so familiar to us. Does that happen to you? In your world daily, do you get so caught up in the rigors of everyday life that you don't pause to appreciate how pretty things are? Why would it exist? Why do we have pieces of art and landscapes that just proclaim God's creative abilities? It's for us to stop, to pause, to really dwell on what God has made and how amazing that it is. It doesn't need to be beautiful, but he made it. He made that for us. Now recognize this then, that of all the beautiful things we created, and this is not just an opinion, but this is what the scriptures resonate to, is that humanity is the most beautiful. We talked about this a few weeks ago uh, when we were talking about this concept, the imago Dei, the image of God, that God made all of us in his image and we don't fully comprehend how that really plays itself out but recognize that being made in his image we have the opportunity then to to use the emotions that god himself inhabits okay so 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 the lord gets sad i mean we read that throughout the scriptures we have the ability to be sad as well. God can be happy and joyous and we have the opportunity to do that. Uh, God has the ability to be anger from a position of righteousness and we too get to embody that. But God, friends, the scriptures testify that God creates and makes. And as we are made in his image, so too do we have this ability to create and I don't want to even stop there it's not just that we have the ability to create but we actually have the need to create I don't know if you feel that within you but we humans have the desire to just make stuff I think it's evidence that just the maybe in just the most basic basic way when you grab a child and throw a box of Legos in front of them they, they, they don't usually, unless they're just in an in, in anger of not getting their ways, they don't just knock the box off the table. They dive knuckles deep into Legos and they start fashioning something together because they have this desire to take something and to make. And similarly, we have that. Maybe it's just something, you know, you want to make uh, something in your garden or in your house. Maybe it's you you want to paint that room that you don't like. Maybe it's just that you, you want to doodle when you're doing other types of things. Friends, we have this inherent need to create and recognize this more so than any other of god's created beings we have the ability to make things creatively and this is again some place where skeptics usually like to, to hone in on and they say well no humans aren't the only creative beings because you can look to the animal kingdom and see their creation right you can see a bird's nest and how intricately it's put together, or a beaver who dams up water. But friends, understand is that as it is amazing that animals have the innate ability to create like that, it's not like they're fashioning new types of bird nests, like multi-tiered level bird nests with different, you know, structural uh, elements, right? Right? It's not like the beaver is trying to think of a dam that, maybe I should do it, you know, like one that also creates hydroelectric energy right there. You don't see a beaver dwelling on that. It's difficult for us to say, yeah, God's made, you know, creative beings, but it's difficult to, pre- to compare a nest to the skyline of Manhattan. True? It's because not only have we been given this ability to create, but it's on a completely different level, friends, and that is a sign of you and I being made in God's image. It's absolutely amazing. And here's the key too. Then when we create, we aren't just doing this activity that resonates who God is, but also we are taking a a a piece of God and and putting him on our creation. I don't know if any of you have been to New York. But I'm telling you, I I find a spiritual experience just as much being by an ocean or near mountains or by the Grand Canyon. I have felt that same wonder when I've stared at the island of Manhattan. And you might think, well, Steve's just idolatrous, right? He's looking at the creation of humans and he's elevating that. But friends, what I would say is that when we see the work of humanity, what we are really seeing is an imprint, a a, a reimagination of the image of God. And that's this wonder of who we are. The one difference that we see within this, though, is it's not that we have the ability to create like God creates. So humans can make some amazing things, but we don't make like God makes. The phrase, theologically, is that God creates ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. You see, when we create, we have to start with stuff right the the sculptor starts with marble or clay the artist starts with a canvas and paints we have to start with items god can start just merely through his words he can make something out of nothing that's something that we do not have the ability to do and thus friends as um as we understand is that we might think we're innovative but we're not nearly We're nowhere in comparison to what God is and what he does. Theologian Jerem Bars writes that we paint with God's colors, we speak with God's gift of language, we explore and express God's sounds and harmonies, working with his creation in all its glory, diversity, and inbuilt inventiveness. So we don't create out of nothing, we create with what God is given us and therefore our creative actions are truly not fully creative but we are just cultivating it's like the buzzword of 2016 17 right i've seen people start to list their job responsibilities or trying to sell people that i'm a cultivator Well, here I think is really a biblical concept because this is what we are doing is we are cultivating what God has. And and, and in reality, when we see the assignment of Adam and Eve when he creates them and puts them here and makes them in his image, what we see is that their first responsibility was to cultivate, right? To basically be gardeners. It's not like they created the fruit, it was there. It's just to make sure that the weeds are extinguished, so that they can can harvest and they can take what God has given them. What's the story to us as we think about creativity? We need to approach it with humility, right? When we make stuff, we want to show it to other people. I don't know, maybe it's, it's just something you put on your Instagram. Maybe it's, you know, you did some sort of cross-stitch that you want to show off to somebody. Maybe you made a deck in your backyard. You have the desire to show that off to people, but we have to recognize is however we can be proud of that, it's just a reflection of us being made in the image of God. So humility is the way. But then we get to the fall, a creative rift, because here we have the sin of adam and eve is creation gone awry when they ate the forbidden fruit what really is that it is them god's creation saying you know what god we want to create a system of authority that exists without you so we are being creatively rebellious and god says this is not good because before the fall, we existed with an innocence before God, but afterwards, what it was was us going awry and not having the ability to maintain that. And we see in Genesis chapter 3 17 that there were penalties for this, and that then we as humans would have Im- uh, um, impediments between us and creating before God. It's a powerful lesson for you and I that not all things that are created resonate the goodness of God. So although we have the ability to create, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of the creations of humanity are then great because there are certain creations that can stand in opposition to what God is trying to accomplish So just because something is aesthetically pleasing does not mean that it then resonates or reflects the goodness of the image of God. See, this is something that I I don't know. I'm not not really an artist, and any studies of it I've done has been from a hack level. So I've had this conversation sometimes with artists to something, but I would declare this, and I think its rule is that Even when it's not evident, there are certain statutes to which art must exist. And if you really think about it, it's those pieces of art that kind of like blur lines when somebody urinates into a bottle with a crucifix in it and tries to call it art, right? Those are the ones which that, that is not like an arbitrary example that has existed, okay? but it's when people try to deviate those things or when you walk into the gallery and there's just a white wall there and they're like, that's art. You know, as much as we might want to proclaim that, it's like, no, that's actually my family room, right? Like, those are the places that we have argument because there are usually parameters that exist, to uh, statutes to which art must submit, okay? Like, there, there is a, a genre that is art under which there are certain rules to be followed. And... It seems limiting, but otherwise it goes from becoming art to not art. And similarly, we as humans must function underneath the creation of God. What was the fall? The fall, friends, was us, and, and, and continually, what is sin? It is us always trying to go to the creator of all types of things and tell him that the way that he designed his universe is wrong or mistaken. Or that we lack humility to be able to say that he actually knew what he was doing. It's the struggle of our human existence, but we have to recognize what that did. It put a rift, a creative rift between us and God. And then we have after the fall, right? And and this is the scope of most biblical history but recognizes that there are examples clearly throughout the scriptures where, after the fall, people continue to fall into this trap. Right? They continue to try to do things in their own way, outside of the parameters that God has put there, and claim artistic license. And maybe this is you know stretching a little bit, but I think it's apt right here when Cain had conflict with his brother Abel. And it's interesting because the conflict was all over about worship, and actually it was about creativity in worship. And, you know, Cain, it was between he and his brother, and his brother's sacrifice was more pleasing to God. And instead of really working on the creative elements that God permitted him to do so in the worship, he said, I'll just kill the other artist, right? He got creative in his problem-solving, and as such, also changed the scope of human history and we see that that affects everything all the way up to the flood because the story of genesis up to the flood is god saying to his creation just do it my way and them continually coming saying no we are brilliant we have our own way and the flood is basically god saying i'm going to rein in these wrongful creative expressions so that i can reclaim what I originally intended and that's the story of Noah and his kids as they leave the ark where God says basically I'm recreating I'm hitting the reset button I'm starting new you are going to be my new creation now you go and do like I want and the irony is is no sooner did they get off the ark than generations pass and they say you know what we should all come together and be creative And in our creation, we should do exactly the opposite of what God has told us to do. So they said, we need to build a tower so that we can be like God. And let's bring all of our creative abilities together, not for the purpose of praising the one who has given that to them, but for the purpose, again, of usurping his throne. So again, what happens with creative expressions gone awry is that people will try to use that and somehow think that we are greater than the creator and we will show that through our brilliance. I love the irony of the Babel story, especially in the era of which we live today, because we are in a time how there there are certain pieces of knowledge that are just, you know, supposed to be undoubtedly true, and so much of it is, you know, really the equivalent of fake news. It's not that it's false, but to admit that these concepts are true beyond the shadow of doubt. Friends, there's ambiguity in the world. But what we do as humanity is we want to be the crafter of some new truth and use that as a guide to have the rest of the world adhere. When God just merely says, look, there's enough space for you to be creative and acknowledge who I am, and instead we build towers But you know, the funny thing as you look at the scriptures all the way up to the Exodus, because then the descendants of Babel end up enslaved, and they're in Egypt, and God raises up a deliverer. It's not until this point in Exodus where there are like very specific indications, because God says, I'm going to provide you latitude, and God says, let me just rein it in so you know exactly what I mean. And God has Moses lead his people to Sinai. And he says, look, here I'm going to give you the law that will help you understand the type of holiness that I'm asking of you. And the irony is, as Moses ascends to the mountain to get the very law, the people at the bottom of the hill are like, you know what would be a great idea? We should create a new God out of gold, and we should worship this God who's really saved us. So it's like they couldn't help themselves. As God was giving Moses the law that said, do not make any idols at the foot of the mountain. They were crafting themselves up a good one. I hope the irony is not lost because it's friends. It's what we do all the time. I live every day with the golden calf because I know what God asks of me. And in my creative abilities, I still find ways to sin and undermine the creator himself it's our existence now i i i'm getting to jesus because that's what everything does right i'm gonna get i'm gonna get to jesus but before i get to jesus can i say one thing it's not all like horrible because it's not like god then starts to say look just stop making things all together Because actually, when you read the descriptions of these places of worship, the tabernacle and the temple, God is very much in in the business. Even though he doesn't want a a statue of himself in the temple, what he does want is a building that resonates the beauty of God. I'm just going to tell you, again, they don't build buildings like this anymore. But I just love to stare around this place because it's unlike anything else. Because I walk into rooms every day of the week, right? But none of them look like this. And that's one thing that our ancestors seemed to grasp a little better than me. You know, I think one of the reasons we don't make these building scares are flipping expensive, or maybe we just like our own money too much. I really don't know. I, I I could pontificate on that, but the big thing is is that these rooms are supposed to jar us from the everyday. I don't care. This is like parenthetical, not in the notes. But there's this point where uh, sometimes, you know, when I have to stand here and I have to watch you sleeping in my sermon, you know, I'm like, should I just like make an emphatic movement to wake you up or kick something? But more so than that, you know, if you're gonna sleep, if that's how you pray, that's fine. But more so, if if I catch your eye wandering around the room and taking a look at the stained glass or up this highly pitched thing, you know, or just looking up, that's what this room was designed to do. So at the very least in your week, You have a place to be where you're thinking beyond what is ordinary. So there's some good things that happen to this. God does this, but we have to understand then, you know, the role of Christ within this. Because, again, Jesus changes everything. And what we see, though, is within who he is... A movement from before the fall to after the fall to a completion in Christ. So the reason we talk about this is how things originally were and where we screwed them up is to get to the point that Christ unites them. And what we tend to do then in this shift is to ignore the fall, the bad, the things that we've done wrong because we're like, oh, Jesus doesn't like that. And when we say that, we miss the point. It's not just that God doesn't like our fall, our sin, our bad stuff, but what he does is he redeems it. And he allows us to use that as a starting place for a creation of a new narrative. Do you realize that? There's this concept of forgive and forget, and it's BS, right? Because as much as you want to say, okay, I can move on from this, our minds have the ability to remember more so than anything pain. So our sin or the sin of somebody else exists, and what we think is like the Jesus thing to do is to completely wipe that away. But understand, it's in that fall, in that sin, that Christ can come and redeem that, and it's from that personal loss that some of the most beautiful art can be created. True? True. Sometimes the, the, the stupidest things I've done in my life, God has redeemed and has taught me a lesson through that that I would not have acknowledged if it wasn't completed in Christ. And this is, friends, what Jesus does then, and this is actually a concept from Athanasius, so I want to say it, it's my brilliance, but it's not because we're stealing it from everybody else, which is the definition of art, right? That the redemption of humanity then through Christ is a return to Eden, and that is essentially re-creation itself and by the way part of then recreation when you remove the hyphen is recreation too so as much as God made us to create he didn't make us to be work machines maybe what you just need to do the rest of the day is pause and do nothing and just live in what he's given you But I love that in every aspect of Jesus' life, Jesus was creative. Actually, even before he was called, because we know that he went 30 years before starting his ministry. Do you know what he did vocationally? He was a tecton. And popularly, tecton was translated in the King James translators back 500 years ago as carpenter. And that was because, to them, it was the only concept of what they knew jesus could actually do because it had the the concept of a workman or somebody handy so they just assume that jesus worked with wood but actually archaeologically we've explored this word through different texts and actually what jesus was the equivalent was a stonemason. he was a bricklayer he would help to construct buildings this is a guy, so, so it's, I, I feel like it's a little bit more romantic when you're working with wood because he can be sanding things and putting together tables or stuff like that. But really, he was out there laying brick and helping buildings to rise from the ground. So even within his day-to-day, it's not just that Jesus was God, it's that he embodied creation. So when he sends us out, after his death, after his resurrection when he's standing on top of a hill ready to go back to heaven from whence he came, Jesus says, you all need to go create. He says, go to all the world and create disciples. Create more of you to show what it means to live under the umbrella of the created God Friends, we're part of the epic story of creation because this line ends up through the church. The church. And we read of this in the Bible, in the book of Acts, and then the letters of Paul, and the epistles of uh, of other apostles. But recognize this, is that then, as we try to understand the moving of God through scripture and creativity, it ends with us, that we are part of this. And that what we need to do is be creative in how we view the world in which we live. And that's why twelve years ago we came here to do so. And that's why we value creativity. Now it's always difficult when you're doing things at maybe a business or strategic view to go back and say, well, how well have we done that? Because then I look at Echo Church and I'm like, well, how much have we really been creative? I mean, we had a year of creativity, so that was one year in which we did it. But where did that operate in different places? But you know, when I'm out working with churches, and that's my gig right now, as I help churches understand things about their operations. When I go in and talk to a church and people ask me about our community, I always say, well, I guess we did things differently. You might not even know this, but for the first eight years or so, we met on Sunday nights. And that's because we wanted to creatively manage our finances, and we got dirt cheap rent to rent out a church down the street for really cheaply. You know, creatively, one of the things we did there, even though we were trying to get the church from that building, like or the building from that church, like they were a dying church, and we wanted to say, look, let us use this building to continue to glorify God, we started dumping money into that church that was just really stupid from a strategic standpoint. Like, uh, that's one of the things that Melissa in the back remembers is Melissa spent a good week or so, we, we would go in, and we, there was a horrible shag carpet in the kids' room, and we had vowed that we were going to replace that shag carpet, and we would put this chemical on it, we would wear masks, and then we'd shovel it out in five-gallon drums. You know, it really was stupid, because, you know, it was just like, we should just have moved on to a different room or something like that, or a different place, but we put money into that, and... When we lost that building, part of me was like, oh man, we screwed that up, didn't we? But that actually became a part of who we were because when we went to the next place, when we found a good church nearby that gave us even cheaper rent and allowed us to stay there, we started to invest it within that church. And actually in this building right here, you know, the fact that the bathrooms operate in the basement or that the carpet doesn't also look like a green shag is because we invested within this building. That's, I'm telling you, from a financial standpoint, which I'm qualified to say this in my job, it's dumb I like to wrap it up as creative. The idea that we're a church that likes to give up to 20, 25% of our, our, our giving out the door that we spend through outreach and missions, that's something that's creative. The idea and the ways that we've done lots of different things here as an approach have been creative, and that's great. I think I can sell that to you. But here's the thing that's important. For us to continue to become the church that we need to become for this community, for this city this list can't be exemplified by things that like we did strategically. It has to be embodied by who you are and what you do and the creativity that you bring to the table. So as we kind of look to see where we are in this process, you have to ask yourself then, what are you doing to be creative? How are you using your role as the image of God to project that image for his kingdom? How are you using the talents that he has given to you to make a broader impact. There's a book called um, Refractions by uh, Makoto Fujimura. It's a great little book. Like, if this this resonates with you, you need to read this book. Um, A really profound artist, really well known about that, but he happens to be a follower of Jesus, too. So in this book, he's talking about um, his life and his art and the way that he approaches things. And specifically, he's talking about where he was spatially because he lives in the city of New York, or at least lived there. He was actually in New York when 9-11 happened. And he was trying to say, how am I, as an artist, really making a difference for Jesus in what I do here? And basically what he likened it to within... His view was this, is like, it's, it's like basically sowing seed on the sidewalk. So I don't know, you know, some of us are urbanites. I'm not, if we're good, you know, planters and growers and stuff. I don't know if you plant seed or have a little garden or something like that. But you understand that if you've lived in the city, you'll see sometimes like, you know, a good weed just, just coming straight out of the sidewalk, right? You're just like, look at that thing, just trying to get out and do this. Fujimura says basically, is like, that's our job as people living in the city trying to use our creative abilities is to sow seed on the sidewalk. And in discussing it, he says, we need the creative, the faithful who would together incarnate their creative gifts in the hearts of urban reality in today's ground zeros. We need those centered souls to find their identities in collaboration. We need, in short, a movement, not a movement of multifrenic activities, but a movement of stillness. We need more creative visionaries who would dare even to plant seedlings in stone that will mature into trees, whose roots will crack open the rock as if it were mere eggs, spilling its shalom, its peace dirt into the heart of the city. What Fujimura is saying, I think, exemplifies what we are trying to do within the DNA of who we are, and that is that we want to be sowing seed in sidewalks that will grow into vibrant trees that brings peace to the city. And friends, as much as I want to, as a leader of this church, help us strategize a plan by which we can accomplish that, it really means very little if we aren't allowing that to be released through ourselves. Friends, as much as you are called to love the Lord and not sin, you are called to use your creative abilities for him. So the challenge... How are you doing that? Again, we might want to say, I'm not that creative. Well, friends, sometimes it's more about the limitation of our understanding of creativity than it really has to mean that. Because maybe you can't design or write. Maybe you can't, you know, use materials to fashion something into beauty. Maybe you're not an instrumentalist, but do you have the ability to encourage One of the things that happens in the city, more so than anything, and we're going to talk about this next week when we get into our next core value, is that there's a mass of loneliness that happens here. You might be here today because you moved to the city and you just didn't know a soul and you wanted to connect. Well, in that place, maybe God has called you to be creatively encouraging. Maybe he's called you to be the person that asks somebody's birthday or in a conversation remembers that they like a certain thing so that when they're in a downtime, you can supply that need. Maybe God has called you to just do good works. Maybe it's helping somebody out in the house when they need something fixed that you have the ability to do. I don't know, maybe it's serving here and trying to find a way to where you can use your abilities to, to maybe help organize the people's pantry, right? Or do something that we haven't even thought of yet. There are no limitations because it exists within us. The one thing I've always liked about the DNA of this church is we're very low on permission because we're sending church. We want to empower you to do so. So even if you're just here for the day, even if you're not visiting, you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to be sending It's one of the reasons why, friends, we believe so strongly in this. Check out our budget. We're not here just to get rich off this gig. We run a low frills operation. But we're trying to be a church that creatively blesses the city with what we have. How are you? How are you using your resources to bless this kingdom? We end our worship in communion and there's sometimes always a transition where you're like, does this really fit into communion? But I'm telling you, I think this fits into communion beautifully. I love that Jesus, right before he died, was thinking, how can I get, and I'm sure it didn't happen this way, but how can I get them to remember me? Because really, I, I've only touched a few hundreds of people, right? Maybe, maybe preached in front of thousands, but they might not even caught who that teacher was. And by the way, you're here today, you're gone tomorrow, nobody remembers you. How could Jesus figure out to get humanity to remember him for thousands of years? Because it was accomplished, right? And it's interesting, the way that he chose to remember was through food, it's through a meal. It was something that is incredibly multi-sensory, right? Because we pick up the bread and you feel the, you know, the cup in your hand, that, that you consume it that it becomes a part of you. In essence, what we talk about within the image of God is, is, is he is a part of us. Even if we can't see or understand fully what that is, Jesus is a part of that and we consume him. we I'm be this. I'm telling you, there's no more creative expression of worship than that which Jesus gave us the night before he died. It was brilliant. And we, his followers, do this all the time. So we remember and reflect on the creativity of Christ. Who being in very nature God gave all that up to come to earth, live life perfect, die a horrible death, and defeat it so that we can be with him in eternity. That's that's our worship. So let's think about his creativity, his worship, and how that expresses us. I'm going to pray and we're going to pass around the trays for communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your scriptures that testify to your creation. Father, um, where we have been creatively defiant, where we have sin in our life, where we are trying to pull you off your throne and have the chair for ourselves, we ask for your forgiveness. We realize, God, that we are very creative sinners, and yet you tolerate us through Christ. And even though that that past might be seedy, you allow that to be created old junk into new art. God, we just praise you for that. We praise you for Jesus, his life, his death, His resurrection, what it means to us. He saves us. We are blessed. We love you. Amen.